Welcome travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your not-so-humble guides on the quest for RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. On our show, we feature diverse tabletop RPG systems, demonstrating them through actual plays and breaking down the rules to provide you with tips, tools, and techniques to help you navigate them. We also love bringing the content creators behind these games into the studio to give you a peek behind the curtain with relevant and insightful interviews. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world or system you're playing. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, diverse NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. In a world headed for disaster, five strangers with mysterious pasts are thrown together by the winds of fate to try to stop the unseen forces that threaten to destroy their world. Join Creval, a dragonborn with no memory and no past, who is the first of the barbarians of the mountains to be seen in a thousand years. Cotter, a penniless paladin, running from something or someone in his past. No one, the only tiefling monk the kingdom has ever seen, who has been expelled from his monastery for reasons he has not revealed. Adri, his monastic companion who hides some deep dark secret she cannot reveal. And Arlen, once a simple farmer, until some mysterious event manifested sorcerous powers in him. They must travel the length and breadth of the kingdom of Faro, searching for the disparate clues that will help them unravel the mystery of the failing of their land, while trying to hold together the unraveling threads of society's weave threatening to come apart at any moment. They will have to battle nature, plague, politics, and even the forces of the underworld as they attempt to discover and defeat whoever, or whatever, is attempting to poison their world and throw it into chaos. Relic of the Past is a novel-length story told via a clean, custom, 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons game. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are found, and at poolmedia.podbean.com. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode. The 2023 recording season is slowly winding down. We are about to go ahead and be taking some time off here uh, so we can go ahead and spend some time with our families and everything like that. But we have a couple more shows to record before we hang up the podcasting spikes for 2023. So to that end, Mr. Myers, Mr. Miller, good evening. I see you raising your hand already, Mr. Myers. This is a super important question that might just get cut, but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, you said a couple of more episodes to record. My understanding is we take the month of December off, my friend, and this is the last day of November. Mm, that's Wait, true. It is the last week of November. However, next Tuesday, we have a recording episode so that we can record our 2023 retrospective. Because as every year that we are on the air, 
some things happened in 2023 that I think that would be important to go ahead and sit back and, and reflect upon in the scope of the tabletop role-playing game space. So you are correct. We do take the month of December off. We'll still have episodes coming out every Friday. That's correct. And Tuesday, actually. Our actual play runs through the end of the year, too. But we do have what you do have one more recording engagement the first week of, of December. The On scheduler the apologizes. On the 5th. Yeah. 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 The, the scheduler apologizes for not being able to accommodate. That's okay. Quite literally. I'll turn 51 that day, but I'll show up anyway. Oh, I didn't know that was your birthday. It yeah, is, it no worries, though. I didn't it put is. it off. I didn't list it as a no-go because I'm not yeah. worried about it. Yeah. We'll have cake and champagne. It'd be fabulous. So, yeah. How are you going to transmit that to me digitally? Replicators uh, are not a thing yet. I'll, I'll run you down some Welch's sparkling grape juice. Exactly. You're close enough. You could get and, and me cake a, and, and wine. And, and, and a cupcake. <laughs> so, well, see, so there we go. So You're covered. Celebrations for your birthday on our last recording session of 2023 next Tuesday. But I wasn't trying to turn my birthday into a thing. I tried to actually ignore <laughs> them most of the time. Yeah. But see, yeah, look, yeah. we got to our first tangent before we even finished see, the intro, Nazareth. Which is so which we're, is we're actually going to try to get back on track now. My bad. <laughs> That's well. We might as well just go ahead. Might as well go ahead and introduce tonight's guest so we can go ahead and get rolling tonight from Zetasis Studios. We have Nazaro with us. Nazaro, welcome to Tabletop Journeys. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Welcome to the show. Thank you definitely for being here. And I can't wait to jump in and talk about all the good, great stuff you got going on. Yeah. So before we start peppering you with questions here tonight, what is Zetasis Studios and what's the kind of stuff that you guys are doing out in the space right now? Zetasis Studios is a small studio that I created so I could publish my games safely. In the modern day gaming world with a lot of content creators, I think a lot of people really lack a fundamental idea of how dangerous it could be if something goes wrong with one of your projects. You can make a poor decision somewhere. It could get caught up in legal limbo. If you're trying to get a publisher, your publisher can acquiesce it by some means. I've seen it happen with a few odds and ends. If you're familiar with that early YouTube scene, there was a band called Your Favorite Martian that was run by Ray William Johnson that wound up in a situation like that. Seeing stuff like that happens <laughs> makes you very paranoid. And so I wanted to make my own game. I had gotten into the tabletop scene in my college years. I knew about it before that, but I started getting really into it in the in my college years. And when I started getting to the end of my program, I said making an entire video game from scratch is probably going to be just as difficult, if not more difficult, than trying to make something like a tabletop game entirely from scratch. So I started making this system that I'm now calling Zenesis, which I've been working on very passionately for about uh, three or so years now, almost four. Wow. Cool. All right, gentlemen, I think it is time. Fan roll dice to the ready. Let's see who gets initiative tonight. Dice, dice, Been dice, hurting dice. for weeks now. Yep. I did. I don't know if you noticed this. And of course, our podcaster listen, audience can't hear, but I did roll my t-shirt with the uh, natural one on the front that says, stop it, get help. This is my Liwanika inaugural t-shirt because you haven't been able to roll anything over double digits in like weeks. So I, ha I had 110 the last time we recorded. Yes. Yeah. Yep. But so. unfortunately, the streak resumes. I rolled an eight. Okay, I have a 16, so. Four! Cha-ching! Cool. All right, there we Woo! go. So that, At least I'm not last. Get, exactly, yeah, there you go. So that means that I get to go first tonight, which is awesome. It means I, I always get to go ahead and ask. Lately, so I'm down. You have gone first a lot lately, and this is great. I get to go first because this means I get to go ahead and launch into the softest of the softball questions. This is fabulous. And obviously, Nazaro, the first thing that we want to know is how did you get into content creation? And more specifically, how did you get into tabletop role-playing gaming to begin with? Origin um, stories. 
Origin stories. <laughs> Background. So you heard me mention that I did go to college for game dev. Being mm-hmm. in a college where you do game dev, everybody's into every kind of game. Oh, like I It's bet. not just an idea of, oh, video game. It's not an idea of tabletop. People are playing card games. People are doing dice games. People are doing video games. People are doing that. But there was in particular this guy that I went to high school with who followed me, not into my program, but to the same college for a different program. At the time where I was still in college and my friends and I were like in the early days of post-high school not really sure what to do with ourselves, not quite in that whole like work phase of our lives yet. I remember we went to this game shop and we were walking around there and I saw like they had this really simple, the D&D starter kit. I actually still, I still use the box for it, for storing my dice and other stuff just for ease. Uh, And I saw that and it piqued my interest. And I was like talking to my friends and I'm like, do you guys want to learn how to play D. we can all get together i'll be willing to learn i'll read the books and they were all like yeah and i had precisely two sessions with them and nobody ever touched it after that but thankfully that one friend that i mentioned earlier was super into D. taught me all the basics i ran into an online friend who was hosting a session at the time was willing to get me introduced and that session died out <laughs> really quickly too and after that i was just like I was like, you know what? It's been a little bit unreliable, so I'll try hosting my own session. And so I started up a 5th edition D&D campaign with, at the time, it was just a group of whoever was willing to join and participate, which included the aforementioned individual who had invited me to my first game ever. And since I didn't know anything about D&D's world, I decided to go for a world that I did know a lot about, which was The Legend of Zelda. So my very first campaign was a homebrew campaign, which is incredibly ambitious in a lot of ways. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it is. And that session lasted five years. I DM'd for five years and it ended a month ago. My players went all the way from level one to level 20. I rotated through a whole lot of different people. Keeping that campaign running was not easy. And I was hosting it actually as a dual party campaign where I had one group that played on Monday and another group of entirely different individuals that were playing on Wednesday. And I was (laughs) running that for five years. And I made four or five maps. I created this incredibly expansive world. I've got notes from back in October of 2018 from when that campaign started that are totally different from the notes at the end. Because I was originally running at XP and then I decided to move over to milestone leveling and etc. But that campaign is really what got me into the idea of doing a lot of homemade content creation because those game series, while very interesting story-wise, obviously aren't outfitted for D20 systems like Roll20 and stuff like that, or D&D, Pathfinder, whatever else have you. Supplements online make it easy, but depending on how you are as a person, some of that stuff can really not be up to your own standards. And if you have the ability to create, I say, why not create? So I did use a lot of that content, like stat blocks and stuff like that, but that was mostly for monsters and everything else I basically made for myself. Wow. That's so impressive on a host of levels because... You're getting into really advanced storytelling tactics and techniques right out of the gate. And that's a really impressive, even the fact that you're running two different game, two different games in the same campaign world on two days of the same week going back and forth on that's, that is not, uh, that is not something for the week. Uh, that is definitely something with, with someone that's got a kind of a really clear vision on the world that they have built and the stories that they want to tell. So kudos to you. And you managed to ride out one of the biggest curses for 5e and D&D in general that I've experienced throughout my lifetime, which is keeping a game together. 
scheduling and keeping the game running can be so difficult, especially when you're starting a new group and running into that right off the bat, but then making the choice to take the range yourself because you were into it enough. That's really cool. Yeah, I would even follow that. Also, if you just finished, you ran that and got through the pandemic as well. Let's put that in perspective for all the folks listening to this episode. A lot of us have gamed. A lot of us have run games. Many of us have run games that have run fairly long or even very long term. Not many of us can say we had a game as our first ga- first time r- really running a full campaign through a pandemic, two in the same world with a major seed change in the method of running the game from experience to milestone. When Josh said you did hero's work, that's vastly underselling it. Like yeah. any one of those things kills a campaign. Anyone. You navigated all of that. And if anybody even questions your drive and love of this hobby, they need to just take a moment, take a breather, and listen to this last couple minutes of this episode to say, <laughs> no, no, check yourself. The yeah. kid's been <laughs> fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- and actually talking about that campaign days actually did shift a couple times, but it was always about talking to people and being like, what's a time slot that works for you? Trying to find places in their schedule that worked and working with them. You're, this is just a general piece of advice for DMs in general. Your players are not your enemies. Your players are there to play a game. They're your friends. Some DMs get too much into the villain role, and some players, ironically, also take on the stance of the DM is my villain. I'm here to beat the DM's bad guy, so the DM is my villain because my DM is my opposition. That's not what it is. Any tabletop game, any game in general, the purpose of a game is to have fun. If you have created a game that isn't fun, then people just won't play it. That's just the core aspect of it is people won't play a game that's not fun. If you need more proof than that, then you will look at what was the Star Wars game that EA made? Yeah, people were not thrilled with that. People (laughs) did not buy that for different reasons, but all the same. It's like ultimately your players, if they want to be there, they'll work with you to be there. If things happen in their life and they can't make it one week, because mind you, I was running this not only consistently, I was running these two sessions every single week. So it's like working with them and sometimes players don't show up and then you go, where do I draw the line? And my line was always, if 50% or more people are showing up, I'm running it. Um, yeah. That That's the thing. And there will always be notes and recap. And if you're confused, I always do sessions starting with a recap. If you have questions, always DM me. I may not DM you back right away. I will always DM you about the general things that have happened in session. You may not have been there as your character, so I may not explain fully 100% everything to give you a full spectrum. Sometimes it's fun watching your players come back and being a little bit confused. It's, But there's a difference between them coming back and being a little confused and totally lost. Mm-hmm. True. Absolutely. No, absolutely true. Yeah. All right, Luenica, I think it is, it's your question, sir. Yes. So... I think I'm going to go with the less softballist of the most softball questions. Zetasis, you've got a Patreon, you've got a page, you've got a number of articles and postings there for folks to check out what you're all about and see what you've been working on in specific. I was hoping you could describe the basics of the Zetasis project and the 
game system that you've been building and working on for the game. Give us the basics on how that works so people kind of have a feel for uh, your game and your game style. One of the fun things that you learn across running D&D 5e for five years in a row is that D&D has been streamlined to the point of being like ball bearings. That could be nice in a lot of ways, but in, in some ways it can also be detriment. Of course, that means it's incredibly easy for people to get into, which is great. I think 5e has been a wonderful thing for the community in getting people involved. But the thing is, once you're super into D&D and you've learned everything that 5e has to offer, you're either going to backtrack to something like 3.5 or you're going to look to another system, in which case typically the next step for most people who play D&D is to look over at Pathfinder. Zenesis, answering your question, is a D20 system. That's what I was most familiar with. That's what I started with. I didn't see the point in changing that. My friend, one of my beta testers, said in some ways that Genesis reminds him a little bit more of 3.5, but he says in some ways it can be more brutal or it's more in-depth in some ways as compared to something like 3.5. The thing is, when you look at something like 5th edition D&D, right, where it's so streamlined, and your next step up is Pathfinder. Pathfinder is so specific that it's intimidating, even if you're a senior GM with something like 5e. It's hard to approach because it's got so much going on, and not all of it is always presented well. There's this kind of mismatched idea that when you create depth, by contrast, you also create complexity. However, Creating a system with depth doesn't necessarily have to be complex. By that, there's a word for it that's escaping me, but it's like the idea of if you make any game right, how easy is it for somebody to pick it up and and figure it out? Like without you next to them, hovering over them, you the creator who obviously knows how it works, how much literacy can they get away from that? And the answer to that is, this is going to sound almost like an offensive way to put it, but know that there is no offense in the way that I put this. You write out everything like you're explaining it to a 10-year-old or like a child. You wind up thinking of all these questions that normally you as an adult wouldn't question. And see, not everybody is on the same, people obviously assume that they're on the same mental level as everybody around them, but we've all definitely had moments where you read something that somebody's very literate with that you yourself might not be literate with leaves you feeling confused. The system is meant to be more like an advanced half step somewhere between Pathfinder and D&D in terms of being more being deeper than D&D, but not nearly as intimidating in its complexity as Pathfinder. So what I wanted was I was like, okay, here's some aspects of these systems that they keep consistent across the board. Here's my six uh, stat block system. Here's my skills. Here's my attacks. And if you look between D&D and Pathfinder, there's certain systems that are the same, like the way you calculate things like skill checks or the way you calculate saving throws or the way you calculate attack rolls. Things like that that are kept the same that make it literate so that anybody who has, and, and this is where the contingency saints from, anybody can pick this up. It becomes anybody who has played a D20 system now knows these core rules and how they work, right? Um, Okay. Yeah. It sounds like you're taking an approach that a lot of us in the space are taking right now where it's like D&D plus a little bit of like old school crunch to it and a little bit of like old – like you said, D&D is so smooth. You're adding a little bit of roughness to it to go ahead and make it a a little bit grittier, uh, a little bit chunkier, a little bit away from the – homogenization that can happen with D&D 5e where everything there's this there are 
plenty of articles, and we've never done a show on it, but maybe we should, about how D&D gives you like the illusion of choice, right? It sounds like you're trying to break away from that without going all the way to Pathfinder, which I think is really cool. Yeah, and people hear stuff like this, and they're just like, then what makes your system different from the Pathfinder? What makes me want to play your system? A lot of the things that I did trying to make Xenesis different, right, without necessarily making it clunkier, was making it a little bit more divvied up. A good example is there is a skill that I believe is used between both Pathfinder and D&D. We call it perception. And perception is your five core senses, right? It's your taste, your touch, your smell, your sight, your hearing, all lumped together into one skill. One of the things that I did, which at first seems like a poor decision in making it clunkier, was I took some of those senses and I put them into other skill categories that used other core ability scores. And the reason for this is simple. The biggest illusion in D&D is the way in which you can build your character. If you're playing a certain class, there's obviously classes that you, there's things you should take for your class. If you're playing a marshal, you take dex or you take strength, one or the other. Con is a dump stat that you take as a marshal where you've put something positive, but not necessarily your best into it because con dictates your health. And nobody worth anybody doing anything other than maybe wizards or rogues touches int at all. Int is the biggest dump stat in D&D. A lot of people don't like hearing that because they're just like, there's no such thing as a bad stat. It's just compared to charisma, which is the entirety of your linguistic big skills. If you want to have any socialization in D&D, you have to have positive charisma or at the very least neutral charisma. When you perceive that you don't have like good roles in something like speaking, you'll leave it to the people who are good at speaking which limits you in the ways that you can interact, which isn't great. And that's one of the negative attributes of assigning every linguistic skills to charisma. Same idea for perception. If you're not wise, you're not going to see or smell or hear anything. That's just how it is. So there's certain skills that I divvied up or I broke down more like adding in linguistic skills that do different things for the charisma-based linguistic skills. If you want to smell something, that's maybe not necessarily the same sense as trying to see or hear something. That way, people aren't left totally blind and in the dark. I wanted to make a system in which there is theoretically no wrong way to build your character, because there's no such thing as a stat that does not offer some benefit to something somewhere in that regard of changing armor so that yes they're still classified but it's not just decks for your armor like heavy armor uses strength light armor uses decks medium armor uses con this idea of there is now no longer an incorrect way to do the way that you build your characters and of course there's still some things like part of that is there's inevitably going to be some places where there might be a more correct decision like if you can describe to me a way in which you would wield a great sword using wisdom i'd love to hear it i looked at everything really hard for a very long time trying to figure out what could apply where to make this system as diversified as possible, as many decisions as I could give to allow as much replayability as possible while giving them as many options as possible to build in ways that aren't necessarily optimized, but in that sense aren't correct nor incorrect either. 
build your character for intelligence if they're some kind of who's to say you can't play like uh, a dude with who's like a burlesque in the ring boxer who's as smart as a harvard professor who's to say that you can't be like the dumbest the dumbest uh, generic dumb sea shantying kind of man who's good with spears or a perpetually blind gunman who's to say you can't be any of that oh i always you mentioned you mentioned the 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 boxer who's hyper intelligent and I always think of Robert Downey Jr. playing Sherlock Holmes in that first movie. Like that to me was epic. It was a sea change in how I approach ways to play various characters and various stats in a game. Like that real a pugilist with intelligence as their lead stat was brilliant. And I think that those kinds of things are awesome when they're in games. And it's great to find that there's creators out there that are making games that can encompass some of those visions in their games. I knew the intellectual pugilist was going to take you to Sherlock Holmes when he mentioned the blind gunman. Wasn't a gunman, but it took me to Rudger Hauer and Blind Fury. He was a swordsman, but it was still pretty damn. Oh yes, oh yes. And I was thinking when you're talking about the the swordsman who uses wisdom, I'm thinking about the swordsman who has studied the craft, who has read all the manuals, who has who spends hours in front of the the ballet mirror only working on forms like their kata and stuff like that. So I can see that being wisdom based, where it's he's like thinking through the process more than actually that kind of thing so i love wisdom or intellect i would think like study is more of a wisdom thing i think wisdom like wizards as opposed to study and interpretation and stuff like that i think is as well but intelligence i think would work too that's just being super smart you you did say doing forms and stuff you take that to a tai chi place for meditation and motion and you're definitely yeah exactly right so If I can interject here, actually hearing you say that does bring me to a certain point that I wanted to make that if you love that sort of stuff, there's actually a class that I've made that's basically exactly what you're talking about. If you read some of my newsletters called Ronin, which Mm. Ronin is just the term I believe used for a wandering swordsman uh, or a wandering samurai that has no lord, I believe it was. Right. Uh, They were solitary, right? They were were like, like lone wolf kind of swordsman. Yeah. Yeah, and they literally just have uh, a feature that stances, and they're based off of, because I do a a pretty fair amount of research into this, they're based off of actual stances and stuff like that. Nice. Um, Cool. We've talked a whole lot about mechanics in that last question, and one of the questions I really want to ask is mechanical, too, so I'll save that one for my next one. As you're building this system, and it's mythology and history to create Genesis. I really was fascinated with some of the choices that you made, like setting it in a uh, turn of the 18 to 1900s. I'm going to call it pre-industrial and industrial revolutionary time. I know you say Victorian through, but Victorian was really still at the, at the early cusp where technology mm-hmm. is really advancing, but it's advancing alongside magic and that's going to be influencing the way that society works. So my question is, can you give us some of the lore behind the world of Genesis and the story pieces, the story elements of how those two forces, magic and technology are intertwining, how they're affecting society. And like when you're actually actively playing the game, the f- overall feel, flavor, theme of a session. See, so now you've done a dangerous thing. You've asked a five-year DM uh, <laughs> to explain world lore. 
<laughs> I, um, I was just thinking to myself, I was like, this might be the last question of the night. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry. I, I was fascinated with a lot of the things I read in the newsletters, and they cover a lot of mechanics, but they didn't cover a lot of lore. And I'm a lore person. So it, it, your world intrigues me enough that I want to know more. And based on what I've read, that's the part I don't know yet. So I've described it as 18th century. That's only because I myself am incapable of accurately describing the exact era that I am aiming for. That's only because I use certain odds and ends. Most of us here are probably what we would all classify as nerds. We probably all love some form of animated media at some juncture. Some might be cartoons and comics. Some people might be anime and some people might like visual novelization or artistic stuff. I love things like what, these are going to be like a few odd spread out examples. What, and, and this is a preface, I won't forget your question. Like what Miyazaki does in things like Howl's Moving Castle or in Castle in the Sky or when they're creating these things that look like, or if we're talking something a little bit more close to home on what some people might know if you've watched like treasure planet where they've got the pirate ships with the big solar sails and there's this kind of like fantastic like sci-fi meets this very classic dramatic type thing and then there's atlantis the lost empire where you get these like big clay fish and the magic crystals and stuff like that or if we use modern day video games xenoblade where they've got this very like rustic mythical feeling world and it's set on top of this giant colossus that's organic and its opposition is the giant colossus that's mechanical and you get this thing that's not quite magic but it's not quite technology i love stuff like that that's where a lot of inspiration for things like Genesis comes from. If you one one like really good image that comes to mind whenever I think of Genesis is I think of one of the early opening scenes from I can't remember which one it was, but it's from Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, either Brotherhood or the original, where Ed's got this mechanical arm, he's got his brother in this suit of armor. They're very different looking. They're in this train and they're looking out over this beautiful world, and there's these big pieces of machinery and things like that. This world that feels mythical, but scientific, stuff like that. I I love stuff like that. Um, I think all of us deeply love stuff like that. We love contrast. No, it is a nice juxtaposition. And (laughs) thank you. To simplify the way that the world's lore is presented, the way in which I describe it is something along the lines of, in the beginning, much like we perceive our own universe, there was nothing. And in that nothing, there was something. And something inside of that nothing decided there needed to be order. Why it decided it needed to be order is the same kind of logic that we would try to apply to something higher ourselves. We don't know what something like we would call God, what its justification would be for wanting or desiring order. But when it wanted or desired it, it got it, and it created what we call the universe. And in that universe, that's where Genesis takes place in. Genesis is the name of the system, but Genesis is also the name of the core realm, right? The thing that where you or I or anybody else would exist. There's planes, layers of existence, there's realms, things like that, different aspects of creation. Genesis is the core plane, and it takes place on this little planet. And the reason why I specify in particularly that Genesis is the core plane and not the planet is because when somebody picks up my system, I want them to think, I can take this system to any other planet in this universe. The world that you're entering is not going to be the world as it was created. But there's this idea where each world 
has its sets of deities, and these deities existed different capacities to allow the world balance. And these deities represent different aspects, what we consider something like fire or light or darkness or the inhabitants of your mind. It represents chemical balance, or it might even represent things like the essence of electricity. Those are the kinds of gods that exist for each and every individual planet. You get rid of one, and it throws the entire thing out of balance. And then there's other gods that are born under other circumstances, and that's how the world expands. And the current iteration of the world just so happens to be at that cusp of about 18th century. The reason why I say I can't accurately describe it, right, is because if I say something to you like, at the later half of the 18th century is when Edo era, I think it was the Edo era, samurai were still wandering around. There was also the fax machine, and it was the Old West, and it was still Victorian England. Yes, they all ran at the same time. Nobody thinks of that. Nobody thinks of that. There, so there, when I say 18th century, somebody will always say Victorian. Yeah. If I say 18th there, century. There's a meme about that, right? About how, how cowboys, pirates, ninja, uh, samurai, and there's a fourth one. And I can't remember what the fourth one is. But these like fourth like totally disparate like cultural icons existed at the same time. But anyway, yeah, sorry. I, I didn't mean to. No, you're totally fine. It, it was actually, I think, ironically, like a little bit of that meme put that idea in my head. Because I do know exactly which one you're talking about. That idea, I won't say got born from that meme, but it's like one of those realizations. If you look at history, you realize certain things happen when you don't think that they happen. This idea that like a samurai could have taken a train and sent a fax. Something about that in your head just goes, no, that's not right. I wanted that. The difference between uh, what I'm talking about and the actuality of Genesis is instead of the proverbial individual who discovers like fire and water together makes steam, makes the first steam locomotive. They discover this kind of crystalline resource. I call it spellstones. And there's a lot of different types of spellstones, but in particularly, I'm going to focus on one type. I call them elemental spellstones, which are these crystallizations of magic created by creatures that exist in the world. There is actual lore explanations for these creatures, so don't worry. It's included in the content. It's like the idea of if you could have a crystal, right, that harnessed like the power of water or ice or whatever else, and you had a crystal that harnessed the power of fire, logically finding a way to make those two interact, they would produce steam, right? Same idea. You create a steam locomotive not by pumping out gallons of water from the ground or from the ocean. You just go, you break off a piece of this crystal here, break off a piece of that crystal there. And that's how the magic technology forms its original basis. And that's how it works. And the idea of it like that is incredibly, like, how to say this? From a perspective as a creator, as a GM, having your crystals just be that and only that is a waste if you just use them for solely that. Elemental spellstones, as I just talked about, the other way in which they're used outside of a power source or outside of used in making magical technology for spellcasters, that's your spellcasting components. They come in different grades like purity. Like we have this idea of metal purity or diamond purity, whatever you want to call that. How high grade your diamond is, how high grade your gold is, same idea. And then I reached that point once I had done that and I said, wow, you know what? This is a good idea, but I can make it better. All of you here have played a D20 system. Probably the biggest thing that you have a criticism of is playing a marshal kind of sucks in some ways compared to a caster. You don't get a lot of versatility compared to a caster, right? You're really cordoned off into ideal bludgeoning, slashing, or piercing. If I want to do anything different, I have to get a magical weapon. 
And that sucks because magical weapons are either rare, they cost a lot, or you have to rely on a magic caster, which doesn't make you feel very strong as an independent individual to give you that extra damage type. So what did I do? I said, here's a magic tool. What's this magic tool duel? It goes over on top of whatever item you're holding, and then you pop in an elemental spell stones, and boom, now you've got a weapon that does secondary damage types without it being magical. You can go to the store, you can buy this resource, you can buy this item, the item will break after a certain number of uses, depending on its grade, the crystal will break after a certain number of turns, bam, there you go. You're now a first level marshal with a secondary damage type that doesn't have to rely on your caster or a magic weapon. It's like the socketed weapons in Diablo, right? When you can go ahead and take a weapon, add a spellstone to it. Basically, they don't call them spellstones, but add a gem to it, basically, and the gem gives an effect to the weapon or the armor or whatever. And that's such an awesome concept. I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah. The other part of it, which this is going to be the last little thing on it, is you don't even need that. You don't even need that either. These spellstones that I talked about, these elemental spellstones, naturalistically, incredibly volatile. Logically, if you tried to cram the idea of, I've got this much fire in a space about yay big, a a capsule of about one inch in terms of length and less than an inch in diameter, or even the size of a ball bearing, right? And you throw that at something, it will just explode. Like, you don't even need those weapons that I'm talking about. You can just use them as is. It's highly distilled too. Okay, nice. Yep, so there's stuff like that. And by doing that, you create a resource that has multifaceted use. You have an item that has multiple ways in which it can be applied and it's useful to everybody. Cool. Very cool. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we've leveled up our game and we're prepared to make your next role legendary. We've just started a partnership with FanWorld Dice and they have over 300 product options to choose from. Gemstone, metal, new liquid core dice, and so much more. Better yet, listeners to the Tabletop Journeys podcast can get 10% off on their orders when they follow the link below and use discount code PODCAST10. A portion of these purchases come back to us, and this is a great way for you to help support the show. dice to the ready. Let's see if Lewin can, can turn his luck around. Of course, now I have Lee luck. I have a six. So I got a three. Oh, okay. What do you got? What do you got, Miller? What do you got? Am you I going to go first with a six? Is that really I what's going to happen? I can't believe I have to do this to you. I can't believe I have finally broken the streak. Thirteen. I'm going <laughs> first. <laughs> All right. Well, you earned it. It's been a while since you've since you've yes one and let's hope i can bang this one out and we joke all the time about how amongst the three hosts we end up snaking each other's questions from time to time this might be the first time that my question was actually snaked by the guest so what i had for a question you actually answered in the answer to your last question so that's cool but i did have a third question queued up just in case so this one is a little nuts and bolts ish, but it's one of the things that in going through many of the posts on the Patreon page that caught my eye. And it's partially because I'm 
really invested in the 5e condition system. One of the things I really like about the Pathfinder system is they have expanded that. They have several additional conditions that 5e does not have. And I know in our writings individually, we've talked about different ways to incorporate the use of conditions into what we do. So I noticed whenever I saw conditions on your page, it tended to be paired with afflictions. And I got the impression that afflictions tended to be more longer term effects versus conditions were short term effects. But I was hoping you could give us a, a quick treatment to, to phrase that for again for the audience so that they have a sense of how that's going to look in the game and how that's improves on the 5e base system. Sure. Conditions and afflictions. They're like a two pair system. Afflictions are conditions, but conditions are not afflictions. The best way I could put it is conditions are like what you think of when you think of things like pathfinders and D&D. They're detriments that are not necessarily damage. We'll put it that way. As of the current moment, there are between both afflictions and, and conditions, 27 different kinds. It's quite a lot. And so the way that it works out is in a very similar way to either one of those systems. You're fighting, you're doing things, you're having these moments of combat. Your saving throws are primarily to resist things like conditions. And conditions will apply negative attributes. They differ depending on which kind of conditions you had, like being poisoned, receiving frostbite, being burned. There's all sorts of different things. Afflictions are what happens when you would be repeatedly afflicted with a condition multiple times in a time frame. Let's say the most basic condition that I can think of off the top of my head that's easily attributable, poison, right? Let's say you get poisoned, right? And then that same attack comes around that poisoned you the first time, comes around again, makes you make the saving throw again. That's You still have to make it. And even if you fail, it's not like more detriments will apply on top of that right away. There are some conditions that will have stacks like that, like D&D's uh, exhaustion system. Um, but in particularly, it's like you've been poisoned once. Now you've been poisoned twice. This is your third time being poisoned. And now because it is your third time being poisoned, you are now afflicted with being poisoned. And what that means is up until that point, right? There's a little chart that states how you can get rid of the condition of being poisoned. It's past your saving throw, you pass the poison out of your system. Get somebody to make a tool check of some kind, that gets rid of the poison in your system. Have a potion that removes the poison condition, removes the poison in your condition. Spell removes the poison condition. Afflictions are typically things that can't be cured very easily. It's the equivalent of you failed a whole bunch and now you're really suffering for it. If there are still like things like I call them files in my system that will remove afflictions, but like the idea of potions of healing, for example, the better the effect of the file, the more expensive it becomes. Same for the idea of magics. Better the magic, more expensive the component costs, harder it is to perform, higher the level required. Same idea. Afflictions and conditions don't go away just because you sleep them off. Most of them don't. The idea that you can be bleeding out and take a power nap to make yourself better is incredibly stupid. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to throw it out there. It's incredibly stupid. Come it's on. Like if, you, if you are cut from navel to sternum, you are not going to nap that off, my guy. So do you have really strong feelings about that? Because I'm getting a little bit of ambiguity from you. Just a little. <laughs> Maybe some. Um, to, to be fair, I know of a person who literally had their shoulder separated and still played a full half of football. 
and did his level best to walk it off in front of the guys. And there's this dumbass right here. Yeah. <laughs> so I love the kind of like the stacking effect of conditions. I think that is one thing. Conditions are one thing that we talk about a lot and the power of conditions, particularly exhaustion. So I like that you use that as a model to build this like Again, this kind of like super system over conditions to go ahead and represent the long term effects of being of having poison in your system for however however or getting a lot of poison in your system. It's it's like people that get bit by rattlesnakes, right? All of a sudden like they they can get the poison out of their system. They're no longer dying from the poison, but their leg is gonna be messed up forever because the poison ate away at the musculature inside their leg. That kind of thing. It's a very exactly. it's a very neat way to wrap that up. It's like not the, the rattlesnake that does that, but there's a there's absolutely another kind of snake that does that where it it's necrotic. It's a necrotic exactly uh, yeah maybe it's not of some yeah. sort. Yeah. Yeah. But yes as a fan of a grittier game and and I've done it at different times it's definitely a session zero conversation that I tend to have because I always want to go that next stage grittier and sometimes I've got a group that wants to sometimes I don't I also am not a fan of the long rest short rest system as written I tend to prefer a system where a short rest is the eight hours a long rest requires a safe place like back in town type of thing it makes it a bit challenging for spellcasters depending on how you work the game but it also mm-hmm. lets you extend your adventuring day into an adventuring week so you can have four encounters but you don't have to put them in one day to make everything balance you can have four encounters over the course of a week and that makes that thing if you're playing the spellcaster or whatever that can be a bit more of a challenge so then i might do other things to just at least give them maybe an extra cantrip or something like that so the spellcasters don't feel I spent that on the first day. Now I'm done for a week. How fun is that, right? You got to find ways to work that in. But I love the fact that if you've got things like conditions that are not damage causing, if you, and then you can say, okay, in one single day, if you get poisoned three times or four times, whatever the line of demarcation is, now you're afflicted with poison. So you have these other long-term effects until you go – get some serious legit help from legit professionals in a real facility or what have you, or seek some, you have to find the guru at the top of the mountain, whatever the case may be, you've got a whole different set of things. It it literally creates a situation where maybe I do want to wear more armor. It may not make me the best combatant because I won't be able to stealth, but I'm not fighting those guys because they use poison. If I'm not in some kind of metal armor that will, give me some kind of protection or something. It just really gives some real strong narrative weight into the way you do things. And I love that setup. Yeah. And as a little add on, some of the conditions progressing into afflictions are fatal. Not all of them are. Some of them can ironically evolve your character in ways that you don't necessarily predict. And others can bring on long-term inflictions. But I'm going to preface this. Zenesis is something that I put three years of my time into. And I have worked incredibly hard to make it as fun of a system as it is hardcore. I'll state this outright as an example. There is literally an affliction built into the system where you can lose limbs. You can lose limbs. The idea of losing a limb as an adventurer is, of course, incredibly crippling. There are systems in there that will allow you to replace those limbs. And those new limbs come with different benefits from your old limbs, but they also come with different detriments. It doesn't mean it's the end of your character. Money or skills or whatever else have you, there's ways of combating things like that. 
but a good example of one that could change your character from an RP perspective that I have, there's a particular condition that I've called fear. And fear is an interesting one because the first time you get afflicted with fear, you have to, I believe I said it was either rolling like evens or odds on a D4 or flipping a coin, one or the other. You have to either roll evens or odds depending on the result or flip a coin. And if the result is one end, you get fight response. And the other end is you get flight response. Hmm. And that just stays. That's just what your fear response is forever. I myself am a flight person. I would run from most any moment in which the threat of harm was prevalent unless there was no other option but to Mm. fight. And I imagine that there's probably a lot of people here who have like different responses. I imagine that Lou and Nika probably being someone who's a little bit more combat trained would probably be a little bit more along the lines of a fight response as compared to a flight Generally, that is a good perception (laughs) of my character, yes. Same idea. And the fun thing about the fear condition is when it progresses into being an affliction, you could become phobic of whatever it is that scared you that bad. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that just does not go away. There's not a file that cures that. Mm. You just are afraid of that. Mm. I believe there, and there's systems for like suspending the detriments of afflictions included in that system. But the idea of, you know what, I'll say it. I'm phobic of bees. I don't like bees. I appreciate mm-hmm. what bees do for the environment, but there's not going to be some kind of magic medicine that makes me not afraid of bees. Yep. You know what I mean? It's the same idea. Like I'm sure everybody here has something that they're afraid of. And oh, if yes. somebody offered you like a little bottle that says juice that makes you not afraid of bees, you'd oh, probably if, be like, you'd probably just be like, bourbon. Sip. yeah. See, I feel like bourbon wouldn't be enough. If somebody um, offered me a bottle of stuff that made me not afraid of spiders, I would drink that every single day. Always. I drink it constantly. I'd have a little, like anytime I walked around anywhere, I'd have the little like IV rack with me with the little IV of the juice that made me not scared of spiders. Like flow, like absolutely. What? If they ever come up with that and Joss is drinking that, I need to find the fool that's got the time machine so I can take that juice back to Josh when we were on the stairs with a couch that dropped <laughs> on his head because he saw a spider. That's what I want. I want yeah. him to have that then. Not now, yeah. then. Yeah. I don't care about now. Be afraid now all you want. <laughs> don't be afraid then. So I have question number two here. In your November update, you talk about the guild system within Xenesis. And that is something that is near and dear to our hearts because we have just successfully crowdfunded our latest book. It was a book on factions. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about how the guild system in Xenesis works and what is its role in the narrative of the world and everything like that. So guilds are an interesting thing. Outside of things like government structures, people playing D20 systems or any system in general do love their political intrigue. Guild systems are meant to exist outside of that. They're like the idea of an organization that has rules and regulations that exist inside of... Oh, what's a good way of putting this? Maybe something along the lines of the United Nations that governs like something like that, like what its core members like have to do, like environmental regulations kind of thing. Same idea. There are several core different aspects, several core different guilds. They do different things. You get your Adventurers Guild, which is for people doing more what we consider like adventures work like, oh, I want to hire somebody to guard me while I travel from point A to point B. Oh, I need some people who are just basically like 
going to go out here and they're going to kill the monsters for me. I need someone to go recover this for me. Deal. Like they, they handle jobs that are a little bit more forefront. There's guilds that handle, handle transportation. There's guilds that handle mercantile stuff like that. They're meant to be uh, a, a source that is like the equivalent of, I am powerful enough to stand on par with nations. And so I do not bend to them, but I do adhere to the rules they set. No matter what nation you're in, the guild's core rules stay the same. What the guild does is I, the guild, exist inside of the nation. And what that means is I'm going to follow the nation's laws on a few core things on like paying my taxes or sheltering criminals from the legal system, things like that. Like a guild is not going to protect you from the legal system of the government that you're in. They won't take the risk unless there are certain circumstances. And I made like this whole section of the document that's just entirely like in-depth rules that of things that the guilds will and won't do. It's like a contract almost. The better you are at your job, the more money there is to earn, the more benefits you receive, generally stuff like that. What they're meant to be is in a way of if you want to travel, there's lots of valid methods for traveling. You want to travel as a merchant? Go ahead. You want to travel just in general, or you want to be the cart driver that drives people somewhere? The theoretical fantasy bus driver? Go ahead, and you can be that. You want to be somebody who goes around the world exploring runes and stuff like that? Guess what? Guild for that. You want to go around around teaching people, guild for that. All of them are equally valid methods, and each one of the guilds gives you is this thing that's like an ID. And the way that IDs are differentiate between guild and guild, but at some point or another, you've probably thought to yourself, they're crossing these countries' borders. Shouldn't they maybe have a passport? Guild cards serve like that. Guild cards and where the guilds are stationed, the main body of guilds, the proverbial headquarters of each and every guild, right? There's main branches in each individual kingdom for certain guilds. They're placed in certain places, but the headquarters, the place where they're stationed, is not in any one place. They're like their own little sovereign area that exists outside the boundaries of any kingdom. Between powerful creatures like dragons or whatever else have you, giant golems, monsters of all sorts of varieties, it's not necessarily safe to build wherever you may be. There's not always merit in taking some places your land. And in those places where the land is stable enough, they set up their little headquarters and they're just, here you go. Don't want to be in any nation? You can be here. Don't know where you want to go? Come to the guild headquarters. We take missions from everywhere and you can figure out where you want to be. If I had to describe it, A guild is really meant to be the means. It's meant to be the means. The guild is the means of justifying it. Like, I want to go to this nation. Why do I want to go to this nation? Can't find a good reason? Go to the guild and look for a mission. There you go. Bam. Instant good reason. Nice. and there's, and I thought this was a fun thing. There's actually a guild for adventurers and a guild for mercs. And you think to yourself, that sounds like the same thing. The ironic difference between them is adventurers won't hunt bounties because that's legally gray. Mercs will hunt bounties. And mm-hmm. that is obviously legally gray. Um, <laughs> if, if you wanted to play somebody who was a little bit more morally gray, there's even guilds for stuff like that. Like, I want to go hunt bounties. Bounties can be on people, on monsters. They can be kill, not kill orders. Go wherever, do whatever, play whatever you want. Nice. Cool. That sounds like a lot of fun. All right, Glenn. I think we are up to you for our last question of the evening. Okay. Nezra, one of the things that stood out to me and I really, this is the one that I, I just had to ask. If it, no matter, I didn't think either of my two co-hosts was going to snake me, and they didn't. But in one of the newsletters, it mentions curses, and that they're going to have their own section, which lit up my imagination with the concept of wait, 
Are curses different than the regular magic system? Are they held apart from that? Do they still use spell stones? And, or are they powered by something else? Are they powered like some form of malice or enmity that, that fuels them? So could you tell me about curses, how they're different than a spell, and what you're doing with a system all about curses? To differentiate them from magic, they technically are magical in nature, but they are not magic. They're not on a spell list. They're available to anybody who can use magic, I believe, was the condition I set. Curses was something that I really had to really had to think about. If, if I had to describe what a curse is like to you, a curse is not necessarily what you think of with a typical curse in these systems. It's, it's more a halfway between a condition and affliction. There are ways of getting rid of them. They apply a negative attribute. Because they're magical in nature, they kind of stick with you, but they're maybe not necessarily what you exactly think of. They're typically like apply a long-term detriment that is not necessarily a condition. They're a way for GMs primarily to find a way of, I have mysteriously transformed into another race. How did this happen? This isn't a condition. (laughs) Things like that. The way that I built them up is generally the idea is utilize resources, utilize magic, utilize spell stones, things like that, which, and then an amount of time, but your class doesn't matter as long as you're familiar with magic. And then cast this magic that places this negative attribute on somebody. And actually, the funny part about me saying somebody, that's actually inaccurate. They're arranged into three categories, which are listed as individual, object, and area, meaning you could place them onto individuals, objects, or areas of effect. So a location or a section of land. And there are a few pre-made ones that I've already got written down. They're rated the same way that spells are, from level one to level nine. With the more intense of the curse, the more intensive the requirements, the higher the time, the more amount of time required, the more amount of magic required, the more resources required. But generally, in proportion to that, the more amped up the effects become, the more actively powerful the detriment. And there's even like a subsystem built into that one that I have there, which is a modifying thing, which is by using this modifier becomes harder to remove. By using this modifier, there's actually a second curse placed underneath the first one, things like that. Or there's even one that's, this will follow your bloodline, ooh, that kind of thing. They're just basically justified as what's called curse modifiers. I dig it. So basically, it's almost. it sounds like it's almost a custom system. You're picking the things that you want your curse to apply. You're picking what it's going to apply to. And then from that, determining how much power, et cetera, is needed? Yep. Basically, cool. and this is my version 1.0. I've only created like a, a few core ones. Most of them are lower level stuff because I'm not expecting everybody to go straight to the far end where they're able to cast these higher level variations to begin with, there's a lot of lower level ones and not a lot of higher level ones. And what will probably wind up happening is as I go further down iterations, I'll think of more as tools and stuff like that for use, or maybe I'll see the community use some. I want to see how something like this could be driven by my players to give me a better idea of the ways in which they would want to see this applied. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Yeah. Take it to the table, try it in a few iterations, make changes as you go, and you're still in the creation phase. That, that There's nothing wrong with that, and that's great. There's only so many ways that I can think of mm-hmm. how something like this would apply. Them wind up being, wind up, 
some of them wind up being a little bit, what seems a little bit more harmless, or it might seem a little bit more almost comedic, depending on the circumstance. There's one that's literally just, I call it like a loose lips. And basically it's just, you tend to speak too freely. So sometimes your character will slip up and say something they don't mean to say. The <laughs> equivalent of, it's like the equivalent of just sitting here and just being like, oh man, my throat really does hurt. I think I'm going to take a sip of water like while I'm in the middle of speaking or something like that. Or I'm sure we've all had a moment where a customer comes up to you and they're just like, hi, having a nice day. And you're just burritos sound good right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Kind of something like that. I'm thinking about it. And I know you're talking about the lower level versus the higher level, that since you're separating it from spells, since curses are a separate entity, you don't have to go all the way to level nine. Yeah. You could divide well, that into tiers of three. So now you've got low level curses, mid level curses, and high level curses, and just run it there. You don't have to go all the way to individualized spells to make a system like that sing. All right. We are going to step aside real quick for the Patreon exclusive portion of the show. Remember, if you want to catch up on our Patreon exclusive content, go to www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. You can see all of the exclusive content that we have out there, plus get early access to all of our episodes. It's a really good time, really great community. Hope to see you over there, and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Nezra, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Let's end tonight with letting you letting our listeners know where they can find Zenesis and other things that are coming out by Zenesis Studios and where they can interact with you. Yeah, so on Patreon, we're just called Zetasys Studios. That's Z-E-T-T-A-S-Y-S-S-T-U-D-I-O-S, spelled exactly like that. You can find us there. That's where our newsletters go up. Typically, they are... Patreon only for about two weeks, and then they are available to the public at whole for viewing. You get early access if you are a Patreon, and like I said earlier, if you are a Patreon, you get to ask a question that will definitely reach my eyes and ears and that I will do my best to answer. And otherwise, you can find me on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. And the Twitter handle for my studios, exact same thing, Zetasys Studios, Z-E-T-A-S-Y-S Studios. And... Yeah, no, there's actually a few fake accounts in there. Look for the one that's like a D20 dice, a uh, 20-sided nice. dice. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, really appreciate the time that you took tonight. So let's see, next week on the show, we're going to get into some kind of new content for 2024, which we will also be talking about later. Be looking forward to that. Yeah. Great way to go ahead and end off our 2023. Nezro, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, and we will, yeah, we'll talk to you later. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Appreciate it as always. And until next time, we'll talk to you then. Bye. Take care. Have a great night. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at TT Journeys, joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. Our full episodes come out every week on Friday, and every Tuesday features actual play and gameplay showcase episodes. Looking for early access? You can support the show and get episodes before everyone else at www.patreon.com forward slash TT Journeys. Check it out today and see all the awesome benefits we bring to our supporters. Lastly, 
if you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible. We would really appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And we bid you fair tides, friends, for Legends Awaits.